0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Addiction patients get treated like crap by psychiatry that gets treated like crap by the medical system. The way people with addiction are being treated is the very embodiment of injustice and oppression. And I said, I'm going to be a doctor and a teacher. I'm going to teach other doctors and health professionals about addiction in a way that helps them see that these are people with an illness that we have to stop oppressing. My name is Inzinga Harrison, and I am a modern minority.
2: but we're no one's model minority.
0: This is a show about all of you, for all of us.
2: On today's show, we're talking to Dr. Nzinga Harrison, Chief Medical Officer and co-founder at Eleanor Health, but also the host of the In Recovery podcast by Lemonada Media. She's a doctor, she's an educator, and a vocal advocate on issues relating to addiction and just super energetic. While we spoke a lot about drug policy as it relates to race and systems of oppression, we actually covered some of the fundamental drivers of life, Sharon. Like, uh, man, I learned a lot. She
0: blew my mind. She completely blew my mind. I mean, I don't want to spoil every little detail, but she she spoke just the way she talked about addiction and Like, she gave me a completely different way to look at it. Like, I kind of don't want to, like, you know, spoil exactly what it was that she said. But it was really, it was just so enlightening to spend time with her. And we talked about that also in terms of, in in the context of race and communities and the whole marijuana legalization thing. But I loved her.
2: It it really challenges our our frame of reference and a lot of our assumptions. And I'd highly recommend you check out her podcast, In Recovery. I've only listened to a few episodes, kind of in preparation for this talk, as we were kind of learning about her and wanting to reach out. And she just has such a really unique voice and a a way of kind of unpacking the issues, but still kind of having the voice of an advocate as she speaks. And it comes with how she was raised. So yeah, we'll get out of the way. And please enjoy our chat with our new friend, Dr. Nzinga. Nzinga, a lot of folks know about your podcast. It came around at the same time as ours. It's it's starting to make some waves. And you're very accomplished. And I, we really want to dig into that. But most people might not know who you were before all of that. Can you tell us a story from your childhood?
1: Oh, let's see. A story from my childhood that kind of exemplifies who I still am today. If you want. Or just an embarrassing one. Oh, if you want an First thing that comes to mind. Yeah, we could do that all day. <laughs> all right. First thing that comes to mind is... My name is Nzinga. So right now my last name is Harrison because patriarchy and marriage. I'm just kidding. My husband. Hey. I'm just kidding.
2: <laughs> we were just explaining this to my daughter. It was, was like,
1: <laughs> it was my decision and I'm happy with it. So, but I grew up with the last name Ajabu. So my name was Nzinga Ajabu growing up in Indianapolis, Indiana in the early 80s. And so... One of the kind of microaggressions that you experience when your name is not Jane Smith is like people just acting like completely and utterly, they can't read when they see the combination of letters that make up your name.
2: I have no idea.
1: (laughs) You feel me. You feel me. And so in first grade, my teacher's name, and I'm going to call her out. She will probably never hear this podcast, but her name is Mrs. Leininger. Not oh, media. I know Miss
2: Leininger. Yeah, she's our biggest fan. Oh. <laughs>
1: yeah. She listens to every single so episode. Ugly. Well, I might ask you to edit this part out. Then I'm just kidding. <laughs> so Miss Leininger, she's actually a fantastic teacher, really nice person. But she was calling me Nzinga, and my parents told me, "You don't let anybody mispronounce your name. That is yours. You define yourself. You name yourself." Kujitaglia, second principle of Kwanzaa. Period. And so she would say Nzinga, and I would say. Nzinga, and then a little bit later, Ninzinga and I would say Nzinga. So then the next time she said Nzinga, I said yes, Miss Leningrad, and she said Leningrad, and I said yes, and she said, you know, my name is not pronounced Leningrad, and I said, you know, my name is not pronounced Ninzinga. and then Good I got for I said, you. <laughs> of
0: course, you did. <laughs>
1: But I did not get in trouble at home because my dad, who was commander of the local Black Panther militia, was like, and this is what I've been teaching you. Good job.
2: Wait, wait, Hang on, hang on. You just slipped that last part in. I
1: mean. (laughs) Uh, What did mom and dad do for a living? (laughs) So my dad was actually an electrical engineer. And this is so funny. You would usually say electrical engineer by day and commander of the local Black Panther militia by night. But it literally was flipped. He was commander of the local Black Panther militia by day. And then he taught electrical engineering at night. That was his second job. And then my mom was a public school teacher and then eventually, like, rose up through the ranks in Indianapolis public schools to go on to become chief of their human resources. So, yeah, education and advocacy, speaking up for yourself. That's how I was raised. Wow. So,
0: what a great way to start your life, right? With such a strong foundation from your parents. Totally. What did mom
2: and dad want you to be when you grew up?
1: They didn't give me any idea of what they wanted me to be. Nope. So what they wanted me to be was fiercely independent and an advocate for justice and equity, no matter what. And I think my brother was always the smartest of us kids. Like Everybody everybody knew that he was the smartest. And he like wanted to be a veterinarian. It was pretty open that I think that's the other thing that I'm really fortunate is that our parents were basically like, "You have everything inside of you to do and be whatever you want to do and be." So, just be an advocate and an activist for equity, whatever. You so do. then,
2: I mean, as a kid, though, that's a tall order. Yeah, I mean, were you, they they gave you that speech and you're like astronaut. <laughs> but, I mean, I guess. <sighs> Fireman? What did you want to be as a kid? Like seeing this at home with mom and dad, but then also being a kid in Indianapolis. Yeah, I decided
1: really early that I wanted to be a doctor. Actually, so drum roll, <laughs> here I am, Doctor Enzinga Harrison. I was like probably five or six years old, and I just I loved anatomy and was like super nerdy kiddo in physiology and science, and so. It looked like engineering or medicine or science of some sort for me. But when I was six, I literally said out loud to my parents, I'm going to be a doctor and a teacher when I grow up. And they didn't say to me, nobody's both a doctor and a teacher. They were like, okay. Nice. And, then, and then you kind of did, right? Yeah, I'm a doctor and a teacher today. <laughs> like legit, <laughs> legit day both of them. Completely both things.
2: I kind of know how you're the same as that little kid in Indianapolis, <laughs> but how are you different?
1: Oh, let's see. Gosh, I feel like I'm laying on your couch here, Raman. How am I? (laughs) I'm not the psychiatrist. He's the
2: psychiatrist, not me. He
0: has that effect on people. You're going to start telling him your deepest, darkest secrets. Just watch. 10 more minutes. I I, I guarantee it.
2: I really just need your Venmo password. (laughs) (laughs) That's how it works.
1: (laughs) For a monthly charge is what I'm agreeing to when I give it to you. So let's see how I'm different from that little kid. I would definitely say... I try to position myself to be in a learning position no matter what environment I'm in. So even if I'm coming to this environment as the expert or as the teacher or as the speaker or as the whatever, then I think I'm really trying to position myself to get as much as I'm giving And I know that's like the opposite of what we tell people, right? We always tell people like, give more than you're getting. But I think when you're talking about interacting with people and learning about people and interacting with systems and learning about systems, you have to be learning as much as you're teaching or else you're not going to be effective. And so I think as a kid, like I was a super smart kid, like legitimately was super smart had a lot of friends, had nourishing parents. And that's not to say like there were not troubles because there were troubles, but in general, I grew up in good soil and I think I was pretty internally focused. Oh, I think I'm the one that's doing this. And over life, you just learn that you're not the one that's doing it. It's an infinite number of factors that are creating every experience and so I think I've become more attuned to those infinite number of factors and literally just like I am one of those smactor- factors and that is small in the big scheme of things.
2: So I do want to kind of follow up on that though. How do you go from what you just said, right? To, I mean, you specialize in addiction and I do want to talk about your work because it's, it's a topic that I think about and I don't think enough people talk about, which is why I love the premise of your show. But when in the journey... Before you became a doctor, while you were in medical school, after you are doing your residency in psychiatry, like when did the focus on addiction come to life?
1: Oh, so now that I'm a psychiatrist, I can tell you as a little kid, <laughs> right? That's what we do as psychiatrists. We look back and we're like, clearly all of your life experiences led to this moment. But in reality, it happened in medical school. So I didn't know that psychiatry was a medical specialty. I didn't have doctors in my family. And the only doctor I saw growing up was my pediatrician, which another insight into Nzinga as a kid, I was six years old when I decided, I don't think he's a good doctor. And when I grow up, I will be a better doctor than he is. Why not? Right. Yeah. So looking yeah. back, I don't think at six years old, I probably could have intimated what was giving me that feeling. But looking back In seventh grade, then I got diagnosed with scoliosis. I went to the orthopedic surgeon. Luckily, I didn't have to get surgery, but Dr. Mark was my surgeon. And immediately I realized it was because Dr. Mark saw me, even though I was a kid. So when he came in the room, he spoke to me before he spoke to my mom. He asked me how I was doing before he asked my mom how I was doing. He explained his medical decisions to me as he was explaining them to my mom. And I realized that I was invisible in my pediatrician's room, never spoke to me, never said, how are you? Never asked me what I thought, never explained anything to me. His interaction was solely with my mother. And that's what made me feel like he wasn't a good doctor because I thought, how can he know what's going on with me when he doesn't even see me? And so I think... I only knew pediatrician, so I was going to be a pediatrician. And then I met Dr. Mark and I was like, I'm going to be a surgeon, a pediatric surgeon, just like Dr. Mark. And the only thing I knew about psychiatry was like, lay on my couch and tell me about your mother. And that didn't seem very scientific to me, so I wasn't interested. But when I did psychiatry in medical school, so in medical school, you rotate through all of the major specialties, And I was actually, this is so funny. I tell this story all the time, but I was like a vocal opponent. You can imagine vocal is part of my DNA, given my dad and my mom. And so I was a vocal opponent. Like, why in the world would I have to do six weeks of psychiatry, which is not even a real medical specialty? And I would only get to do three (laughs) weeks in the emergency room. Like that's just ridiculous. And I did psychiatry and holy smolly, I was like what the F I came home and I told my roommate who is now one of my best friends. I was like, I think I might be a psychiatrist. And she was like, dude, this is the wildest twilight zone episode ever. (laughs) And I was like, I know, but it was so biological and it was so physiological and it was so intertwined. Like we think we know, we think we are so in control of the decisions we make and the behaviors we have and the way we interact with each other. And so much of it is electrical and chemical and physiological. And I was just, I was floored. And then I saw like, I don't know if people can cuss on your podcast, so I'll keep it. Oh, we up. cuss all the time. Oh, yeah. Go oh, for fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there you go. Right.
2: Sorry, mom. Sorry, mom. Sorry,
1: mom. You dropped the big one. Okay. <laughs> I'll tell
2: you. A funny hey, this thing. isn't lim- this isn't lemonade of media. Okay, I'm <laughs> no. just
1: lemonada no. pronunciation okay. <laughs> rhyming. <Sorry>. So, funny, <laughs> funny. Over the weekend, we were we take a weekend away as a family, and so my nieces were with us. They're seven and nine. You're like, what? Where's this even going? This has to do with cussing. So I try not to cuss in front of the kids, although cussing is actually good for you, right? And so, literally. The science shows the a
2: psychiatrist, f- just a psychiatrist just told me that on the The air. science shows
1: that. us that cussing is good for you, but cussing is not good for the kids. So hold it together. <laughs> but so we were on the dock and we were packing up and my niece's fish hook got caught under the dock. And I was like, do not touch the fishing pole. I'm getting this hook. I, f- I get the hook out and I'm being very careful. And What does she do? She picks up the pole and she hooks my entire ring finger. I mean, like all the way through like a fish, like I had to back the hook out. But when the hook went in, I screamed the F-bomb at the top of my lungs. I swear everybody in every lake house on Lake Arrowhead heard it. And she was so shocked. Bless her heart. I think I traumatized her because I don't think she's ever heard ZZ (laughs) cause. Anyway, the point is that I was like, psychiatry patients get treated like crap by the medical system. And addiction patients get treated like crap by psychiatry that gets treated like crap by the medical system. And so when I did my psychiatry rotation, it tapped my scientist bone, anatomy, physiology, neurobiology, brain imaging, relationships had, and seeing people had always been very important to me, as you heard from that pediatrician story. And like I felt like I was able to see people that other people were making invisible and the opportunity for advocacy. I was like this, the way people with addiction are being treated is the very embodiment of injustice and oppression. And I was like, I said, I'm going to be a doctor and a teacher. I'm going to teach other doctors and health professionals about addiction in a way that helps them see that these are people with an illness that we have to stop oppressing and it, it laid the foundation for my whole career.
2: And so I discovered you as I, Sharon and I were kind of like starting this podcast journey. And what I love about your show is it's equal parts kind of candid Q&A. It's conversational. You're, I don't want to say dumbing it down, but you're speaking to it in a way that we can understand it. And yet you have a very soapbox kind of nature. Like <laughs> Even am. some of the, the no, and, I, and I, I that's t- a compliment. I try like, not
1: to be soapboxy, but good Lord.
2: <laughs> but- even in some of your answers, the way you wove justice into an oppression into the last question I just asked you, right? But how did you go from just being a psychiatrist and an addiction specialist? What was the motivation to want to get on mic oh. and kind of share your story? And I mean, Sharon and I have our motivations for why we do this show, but podcaster to podcaster, why? Yeah, yeah, it's very different from the day job, mm-hmm. so to
1: speak. Mm-hmm. So this is another example of how we think we make our own decisions, but really the universe and the world and whatever you believe in is bringing things to us. So I am chief medical officer and co-founder of Eleanor Health, and we created Eleanor Health literally to do exactly what I just said, to change the way that we treat people with addiction in this country and double entendre there. So medically, the way we treat people, but also just from a human perspective, the way we treat people. And our we were we're venture capital backed. So we were founded in part by Town Hall Ventures. And Andy Slavitt is one of the partners. And I hope I got that word right because I'm new to the VC space. So Andy, if I got your title wrong, there charge it to my to my brain, not to my heart, <laughs> as they say. Andy Slavitt is one of our board members for Eleanor Health, and he also knows the Lemonada Media family really well. And so, Lemonada Media was doing the Last Day podcast, which you haven't listened to. Like, please, 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 incredible! They were doing it on the opioid epidemic, and the nearest series for Last Day is going to be on the suicide epidemic. But they were doing Last Day opioid epidemic, and they had put together kind of like the whole season of shows and said, "What we're missing is." the voice of an expert that can like really bring some evidence-based information to the audience. And so they mentioned that to Andy. Andy said, I know a person. Andy shot me a text message and was like, hey, Nzinga, would you be willing to do this? I was like, love doing that stuff, of course. And I went on last day and it was, it was like love at first ears, love at first hearing between me and Lemonada Media. And so I ended up, doing a couple of episodes for them. They came out and did a feature episode on Eleanor Health. And as they were wrapping up that series, they had cultivated such a community of people that they knew needed to stay connected. People who had been personally affected either by losing loved ones to opioid use disorder or having opioid use disorder themselves. They had always conceptualized Last Day as a finite series, but they didn't want to cut off that community. And so they came to me and said, would you consider doing a follow-on podcast in recovery? And I was like, what? I know nothing about podcasting. I don't (laughs) even have a mic. What are you talking about? Headphones and Zencaster. This is like a world I know nothing about. And they said, we'll support you every step of the way. We'll make it happen. And so literally, Limonata Media made it happen. And everybody looks at it like, oh, Harrison, Dr. Nzinga Harrison, so forward-thinking, podcasting doctor. No, <laughs> the universe <laughs> brought me Eleanor Health, and the universe brought me in recovery, and I'm in learner's position in both of those seats. And
2: your last step, one thing you do really well on your show is it's not just you, right? You, you have a team that you're working with. And something Sharon and I try to do off each other on this show is, we're sometimes the voice of the audience. Like I will, I will fully ask the dumb question about something I don't know, because someone who, and I would do that in a meeting at work at a startup or a big company, right? Someone else in the audience is thinking that too. I can't be the only dumb person. (laughs) (laughs) And you kind of play that off with each other. Your most recent episode, and this episode will air much later, but you have a really good episode about weed that just came out. Yeah, I cram.
1: <laughs> I'm impressed because that he literally came homework. out this morning.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 20 minutes before we hit record, I'm listening to it on 2x feed. <laughs> but in the episode, again, you get on your soapbox and you tie it back to like, I'm not even going to call it marijuana because the way marijuana was used was to make it a foreign scary thing. And I guess I'm just going to ask point blank. Addiction- and I'm going to misdefine this so please correct me Zinga. but like addiction is not just a medical issue but the way we policy it is a race issue in this country I mean yeah. maybe in the world I can only speak about the country we're living in right and how do you address that like I mean I don't I'm not asking for a solution but talk me through it like or, or help for the audience can you link those two things a little bit more and like what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong here?
1: yeah I would love to link these two things and so at Eleanor Health one of our new staff member orientation trainings. Every single staff member that joins Eleanor Health, whether they're direct care or whether in administration C-level, goes through this training called racism, oppression, culture, and recovery. And one of the things we put there is the history of illegal drug legislation in the United States. And so let me put it in context for you. Prior to 1870s, There were no illegal drugs, period. There were drugs, just nothing was illegal. And then in the 1870s, the first anti-opium laws started coming. So anti-opium is poppy leaf, opioids, heroin, okay, morphine. And those anti-opium laws were developed specifically to target Chinese immigrants. The goal of those laws were to catch Chinese immigrants with opium and put them in jail. That's the beginning of illegal drugs in the United States, racism and xenophobia, period. Then you move into the 1900s and the second set of laws that were targeted towards towards drugs were for cocaine. And those cocaine laws were to target black men in the South. Racism. Racism. Then you move forward a couple of decades and you get to anti-marijuana. This is when marijuana started to become illegal in the United States. And those laws were specifically to target Mexican migrants and Mexican Americans because that's who was using marijuana at the time, racism. Then you move into the Nixon war on drugs, which is 1960s. And this is well characterized. You have Nixon and his aides on tape saying we knew we couldn't make the war illegal and we knew we couldn't make being Black illegal, but those were the two biggest factions that were against us, the anti-war left and Black people. And so as part of his re-election campaign, they attached the idea of drugs to the anti-war left through marijuana and the idea of drugs and violence to Black people through cocaine. And that was the public image they sent so that Those two groups would be disenfranchised and driving thereby votes to the Nixon campaign for re-election. That's the war on drugs, racism. And so when we look today at how our laws affect people of different races, it is no confusing thing that people of color are disproportionately affected because that is literally why drugs were made illegal in the first place.
2: It's, and it's how some of them are classified or like I mean, the gram of cocaine, gram right. of crack. Totally. Argument, Same drug. Right.
0: right.
2: But even right. now as legalization is happening in pockets around the country, I mean, you talk about this, like there's, there's good and bad. There's the very Sephora like dispensary experience, right? Sephora. Which is acceptable. <laughs> and <laughs> And I know. I mean, I was at a, I was at a dispensary in Berkeley and in, in Denver prior to the entire lockdown, and I was just like, "Oh wow, okay, I can see the marketing in this." Oh yeah,
1: it's a good experience. There's brand oh, yeah. building.
0: Yeah, the packaging for some of that stuff is gorgeous. Beautiful. It's like,
1: you didn't I'm like, even I want to buy that exactly. just to
0: have something so pretty in my
2: hand. Exactly.
1: You're like, I, I wasn't even thinking about eating a weed brownie, but how can I say no? This is beautiful. Right.
2: But it, it's yeah. almost like the sanitized version of it that makes it okay for and again, I say this as an Asian person in the safe socioeconomic upper middle majority. Sure.
0: It's and not then that from scary the thing business, you buy in the corner. And then like kind of on a higher level too, like I, I was looking so I've been playing around with investing in different stocks on the Robinhood app. Oh, good and for you. So that's good overall. And then I was looking at I've invested in, in one or two C B related or cannabis related companies. And I actually took a step back the other day and I was like, is this something I want to be doing? You know what I mean? Yes. Marijuana is being legalized in various pockets and, and yes, there's like a whole industry booming from it. But, but then when I, when I hear what you guys are talking about and I, I kind of look at it bigger picture, I'm realizing, am I contributing to this problem of only certain groups are allowed to either sell this stuff grow this stuff profit from this stuff and it's being seen as being respectable i mean like it's on the people are buying stocks of these companies that are pumping mass produced hydroponic whatever they're doing right to to create beautifully designed packages and then we're still criminalizing other people that are maybe selling or buying dime bags off of the street and is that okay
1: i mean you're raising a huge issue and when legalization of recreational marijuana and medical marijuana was just starting to kind of bubble up in the medical community i went to this really great session at it was like at an american psychiatric association conference that was talking exactly about this because you're right not only are we still criminalizing people for dime bags and dubs and nickel bags on the corner while other socioeconomic groups and People of the white race getting rich, who is cut out of that? And Jay-Z has this beautiful video on it, which is also part of our training, that new staff training at Eleanor Health, which is like literally for the same business ideas minus the marketing that you mentioned, Sharon, quote unquote, drug dealers who have only sold marijuana their whole lives, but who are felons as a result of that cannot take part in the new movement for medical marijuana because the regulations prevent you from getting a license, prevent you- They're not even allowed to vote. Not even allowed to vote. Don't even, why are you trying to get me started, Raman? Gracious. (laughs) And so to answer your question, do I even feel good about buying these stocks? I don't think you can, one, my husband trades the stock market for a living. So you can feel good about buying stocks. Just because if you look at the demographic distribution of who has a part of the stock market in this country, again, there is structural inequity there. So as a woman, what's your race and ethnicity, Sharon? I'm Chinese, Chinese-American. As a Chinese-American woman, we need you in the stock market, okay? That is true. <laughs> so, yes. And I'm happy, happy to
0: contribute my couple of bucks here that and there is
1: correct. <laughs> to participate. That is correct. So yes, from that angle you can feel great about it. My husband and I are heavily invested in cannabis stocks because we feel like part of that is reparations. (laughs) Like the cannabis industry owes black people and owes Mexicans and owes poor people who have been criminalized by this industry. Literally, I would like to see legislation that some percentage of money that is made off of this industry goes back to these communities that have been decimated by the legal environment around marijuana. I would like to see you have to invest in businesses. You have to wipe any criminal history that is only marijuana related. As soon as your state approves recreational marijuana, you need to go back and retroactively wipe every single marijuana charge. So just be raising your voice. You just did it on this podcast. Invest and raise your voice and good to go.
0: And there are, I mean, I know very little about this, but I've kind of touched a little bit through a client of mine where I live in California now. And so that's also been really eye-opening because going from New York to California and just weed is, you smell it everywhere. It's just like a thing here, like as if it's coffee. And I'm like, it's so weird because in New York, I mean, my whole life, drugs have always been so taboo and and you just wouldn't you wouldn't take out a pen and just smoke it on the corner without feeling weird
2: about it well it's it's the new england demographic versus the california demographic yeah. I and mean, again new york City is one thing right but it's albany plays a role in the control of what happens in manhattan even though that's very diverse in right. manhattan right right and seeing, i want to ask i mean i don't know indianapolis indiana midwest now you're in georgia i believe i grew up in the south i worked in the midwest the Policy, it's purplish red, the perception of these things that we're talking about. So some of our listeners in that part of the country, they're probably not going to agree with some of these things that we're talking about. What is the sentiment on the ground over there? as you interact with folks professionally?
1: Yeah, so you're right. Grew up in Indiana, which is very conservative. So very difficult to even think about getting medical marijuana legalized in Indiana, let alone recreational marijuana.
2: Nick Lachey is trying to do it in Cincinnati.
1: Yeah, so. yeah. like the sentiment is growing, but definitely nowhere near like a California or a Colorado. The same was true. So I did undergrad in DC at Howard, for all of my people listening. Went up to Med and then down here to Georgia. So I've always been in very conservative spaces. I'm also an addiction doctor. And so yeah. I don't want anyone listening to think that people don't get addicted to marijuana because they do. Every single one of us knows somebody whose life would be more productive if they weren't smoking the amount of weed that they're smoking. And I have definitely taken care of people who have like had severe addiction to Marijuana. Is it at the same rate as other drugs? No, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. And so I think there is a balance to strike. But to your point, I'm in, it took me a long time to get to the point where I was like, we should legalize marijuana. And I am actually, and let me give this disclaimer, this is the opinion of Nzinga Harrison, not Eleanor Health and not Limonata Media, that we should legalize all drugs. And the reason I say my opinion that I've come to is that we should legalize all drugs is because the social legal constructs that we have put around drug use are leading to people dying. The laws that we have made are leading to people not being able to see addiction as an illness, instead seeing addiction as a criminal issue, as a personal issue, as a moral failing. And that is leading to people dying. And so if we could just back that completely out and just take care of people that have a medical illness, I think we would be in a better position. But it's it's, it's very different in and different so, states.
0: This is my ignorant, naive question, though. Wouldn't that encourage more drug use and therefore in- create more addiction?
1: It's the perfect question. And so to be clear, I don't think we should legalize mass distribution and selling, like drug trafficking. I don't think we should legalize drug trafficking. And there's still some overlap there. But what we do is the same thing. You'll hear the same argument with prostitution, when people say we should make prostitution legal. Because if you look at, there are-
2: It's about the criminalization of it. It's about the the
1: criminalization of it, right? And so at some point, the criminalization of it actually causes more damage and then pushes people who are vulnerable and already cast out and marginalized, pushes people into those industries. And then there's not a way for them to get out because they can't ask for help because what they're doing is illegal. And, and so I'm using that same kind of thinking to say like, If I have a person who clearly has an addiction, even if they're also selling drugs, which also happens and that goes both ways. Like sometimes you start selling and then you start using and then you get addicted. Sometimes you're addicted and you start selling to support the addiction. Either way, a person who is addicted, we need to figure out how to make the drug use itself not be illegal. Now there are illegal behaviors that come along with addiction and those should stay illegal, but using the drug itself, If you look at a person who robs a house with drugs not involved and a person who robs a house with drugs involved, the person who robs a house with drugs involved gets additional charges that keeps them out of treatment and in the legal system. And so they're actually being penalized for having addiction. That's- Oh, and it's
2: costing us more than preventative measures could have.
1: $7 per $1 to put a number on that. I think
2: it's almost like we have to level up. And look, we've talked a lot about drugs in this show, but- The level up that our society almost has to unlearn is kind of our perception of addiction. And you you famously say, anyone who fights, anyone who says it's not an illness, right? You'll take your earrings off. I will. You'll fight them. I'm ready to fight. I love that. (laughs) So speak to that. Speak to, I get it, trust me. But it's, can you talk to addiction as an illness that is a societal issue that we need to be addressing? Everything else is kind of like window dressing that, that are causes of it. So.
0: And can can I put some color on that too? I'm also curious from a cultural perspective, how that plays in because as someone from an Asian background where we don't talk about anything, right? There's nothing to see here. Everything's fine. Yeah. Maybe dad drank too much tonight or like whatever it might be.
1: How does that play into all of this as well when you're looking at different groups and communities? Yeah. And so let's take it. I often try to do this by taking it out of addiction at first and just into something that all of us can relate to. And so everybody has lost someone, like gone to a funeral and grieved. And when you're in that amount of emotional pain, actually biologically part of our impulse is to slink off and be by ourselves, but we are pack animals. And so when you slink off from the pack and you're by yourself, when you're acutely injured, whether that's physically or emotionally, Actually, if you stay away from the pack and you stay slinked off and isolated, then what happens is that you get worse and ultimately you die, right? Like an animal that gets kicked out of the pack yeah. dies. And so when we have lost someone and what do we do? We come together for a funeral, for a memorial. We eat together afterwards. People bring food over. And I know the customs are different um, in different cultures, but in every culture, there is some coming together. And that's because as humans, as animals, when you're injured, you need your pack. And so if we take that to addiction and we think about the stigma that we've wrapped around addiction and the laws that we've wrapped around drug use and the the overall kind of way that we look at people who have this illness and the way that we treat people with this illness... All of the current system is designed to kick you out of the pack, right? Like you're still using, you can't come home. You can't get a job. You have to answer on your medical license if you've ever had an addiction. And there are, there are safety things that wrap around this. But in reality, all of the systems we have right now are designed to kick people out of the pack at a time. When they are the sickest.
2: When they need the pack the most. The
1: time when they need the pack the most. And so, what we, when you say, Raman, that we have to level up, the level up we have to do is because the symptoms of addiction are hurtful to your loved ones. They're hurtful to the people who care about you. And so, what I try to do on In Recovery and what we definitely try to do every single day at Eleanor Health, the reason you get professional help is because I have more space because that hurt of that addiction is not directed specifically at me. It will be much easier for me to stay in a relationship with a person who is my patient that has addiction than it is for me to stay in a relationship with my son, my mother, my brother, because of all of the other emotions that are wrapped up in the injury that feels like you're doing this to me. And so the level up is being able to get past the hurt that we're experiencing and recognize that that hurt is not coming from the people that have the illness, that hurt is coming from the illness. So let's direct all of our ire at the illness, but let's wrap around the person who is sick so that they have a pack during their time of greatest need. And that's easier said than done, but you have to say it so that we can be motivated to try to do it. Yeah.
2: I mean, you have to be aware. The other thing about our system though, I'm just going to venture out on a limb and guess <laughs> our healthcare system. Universally, we don't treat it like an illness; we treat it like a mental problem. I'm watching the rewatching the West Wing right now, and the chief of staff is a recovering op- opioid addict. And as he's explaining it to his staff and people he works with, he's like, "I've always been an addict. <laughs> like I'm still an addict. I'm. It's not that I'm not one anymore. And I don't think we acknowledge that as a society." Because our systems don't acknowledge it, be it political, medical, insurance. What's the gap that needs to be closed if we're not going to recognize it?
1: So first of all, I'm going to push back on you. And I know you're just quoting the show. And this is how part of it is that we need to change the representations we have in media also.
2: Oh, yeah. Because I'm informed by it. I'm I'm informed by pop culture. That's right. And they did it wrong. Totally. Yeah, keep going. So
1: on that show, he has not always been an addict. Nope. He may, maybe he was born to a mother who had addiction. And so maybe he was born with a physiological dependence and literally from the time he was there, but he has not always been an addict. And he, the reason I'm hammering hard on this is because part of the mistake we make is defining people by their illness like that's who you are. That's not who you are. You have addiction, right? Like you're not an addict, you have addiction. Just like, you're not cancer, you have cancer. Just like you're not diabetes, you have diabetes. You're not HIV, you have HIV. And so it's it's so critically important to separate the illness from the person. And it's also critically difficult to do that because the symptoms of substance use disorder are thinking, feeling, behaving symptoms. And we think that defines who we are, but he's not an addict. Now, it is true. Once you have addiction, You always have addiction, even if your symptoms are in remission. Trust me, that addiction is right there waiting for its chance to recur. Just like once you have cancer, we're always trying to be very aware and look very early for any relapse and any recurrence so that we can get on top of it. The same is true for addiction. And you're right, Raman. Our medical systems have not treated addiction as an illness, one, at all, but definitely not as a chronic medical illness. Because if we treated it as a chronic medical illness, we wouldn't think three to five days of detox was the answer. And we wouldn't think 30 days of rehab was the answer. We would know, just like with diabetes, and I feel myself being soapboxy ramen. You predicted no, You predicted this was going to happen. That's <laughs> what
0: we want. Yeah. yeah, we want this. This is great. But
1: just like with diabetes, just because right now while you're taking your insulin and your glucophage and exercising and following the meal plan and the stress is low and you're well connected to your support system, your blood sugar looks perfect, guess what? If you stop insulin, if you stop glucophage, if somebody dies, if you lose your job and your stress hormones go up, if you start fighting with your spouse, if you stop doing exercising, if your eating changes because of all those stressors I just mentioned, you tell me, Ramon and Sharon, what's going to happen to your blood sugar? It's going to relapse. Your diabetes is going to relapse. So that's the last thing I'll put here before I stop preaching, which is like also we say, oh, that person relapsed. That person didn't relapse their illness relapsed. And back to what I said earlier in the show, for an infinite number of reasons, did that illness relapse? The same thing we don't say with cancer. When a woman whose breast cancer is in remission and that cancer comes back, we don't say that woman relapsed. We say that breast cancer relapsed because we're able to separate the illness from the person.
2: I think it's really important. that I like that almost every answer reframes it around something else where we already have that association. And that's even like my West Wing incorrect or correct West Wing quoting, whatever Aaron Sorkin said on the episode, my interpretation and what I took it shows almost like my unconscious bias towards these things, be it people in my life or my family. And I think that's the, be it what, what is said on, in the TV or movies or what we choose to take away from it because of what we're informed or misinformed by. Thank you and not just for your answer, but the few episodes of your podcast I've listened to, this is the myth you are trying to dispel. This is the truth you are trying to speak. And I think more people need to be hearing it. Otherwise, we're just going to continue to be unconscious and unaware of the biases we have and the interpretations we choose to make. Because at the end of the day, never mind how I deal with myself or my family, I vote for things. I make choices. I spend money on things. And as a society, I feel like we're I'm getting so boxy, but like as a society, I feel like we're propagating the problem yep. by not knowing enough about this or not thinking about it in a complete manner.
1: So you know what, Ramen One, I love that. So welcome to the soapbox. I'm scooting over so you can get on it. <laughs> sharing on it too. But yeah, I'm glad that you said unconscious bias because when you say that to people, it is received as an accusation. And I actually do a lot of. Teaching around unconscious bias against people with substance use disorders, but also unconscious racial, ethnic, and gender bias. And what I tell people, like you said, it helps to hear it put in a different context that's not addiction, because then the whole point of that literally is to try to jump around the biases that we have that relate to addiction. The same thing is true for unconscious bias, it is just the way the brain works. It just is. So it's not an accusation to say you need to take a look at your own unconscious and implicit bias and see how that's affecting your decisions. That is just because you're human. And so as part of my training on this, I use this example. And it's funny because I learned even as I was developing this example, but this is several years ago now, I was writing this talk on implicit bias. And I put a bright red, shiny apple up. And my intent was to ask the audience, like, is this apple delicious or disgusting? Overwhelmingly in the United States, people say the apple is delicious because we've been trained by our life experiences that red shiny apples taste delicious. And then I put an apple up that's kind of brown and spotty. I say, is this apple delicious or disgusting? And people are like, yuck, disgusting. Egg, gross. It's going to have a worm in it, blah, 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 because that's how we've been trained overwhelmingly in the United States. And then I say, see? you haven't tasted either one of these apples. You haven't even held either one of these apples in your hand. You just saw a picture of this apple and your unconscious bias against apples made you think you knew something about the apples on the screen. Are you an appleist? <laughs> and it, it's the lizard
2: brain taking over. I had a it's professor once tell me, economic professor, actually, he said, civilization is a rebellion against nature. What he meant by that was the choices we make to not be afraid of water or fire or a horseless carriage, right? Be it whatever's in the lizard brain or whatever generations have trained us, everything that's come before, kind of a conservative fixed mindset. And to progress, and I use that word very consciously, right? To move forward. I don't want to say we have to think for ourselves, but we have to challenge assumptions, be it the assumptions of the lizard brain or what five generations said or what your parents said. These are useless things. The don't eat the yellow apple is a it's a defense. That's
1: right. Because that apple might kill you.
2: Right. Yeah. But you have to. And I even think this. I was talking to my wife about information. The thing we don't teach today and we need to as we all get dumb with smartphones is information literacy. Just because it's on the internet doesn't mean it's true. Just because it's a headline you saw on Facebook. So it's the same thing. How do you interrogate that apple without having to eat it, but without ask around it? But then who are you asking? Are you asking the right people? But I don't think there's a silver bullet answer. But the question, I think the, the answer is to acknowledge that you don't have all the answers and not everyone has all the answers.
1: Yep. It's that continuous learner position. Ask. Ask and like try to go. And this is, I have to constantly do this for myself because, interestingly, even as a psychiatrist, I have been trained into listening. But I think, kind of at default, like my personality is to be a doer, not a listener. And so, the skill that I've been trained in over time is listening. And I think being trained in that has served me well. It's just like trying to go into every experience, wanting to hear rather than wanting to be heard. And that it's kind of anti the narcissism of being human. We all want to be heard, just like in that pediatrician's office, I wanted to be seen. We all want to be seen. We all want to be heard. But finding a way to be seen and heard, but still wanting to see and hear more than to be seen and to be heard.
2: Yeah. I mean, generous listening is a form of love, right? And that you have to do it. You shouldn't be thinking about what you're going to say next. And even as a podcaster, that's yeah. like a, that's an impulse. You fight, but it's like really kind of take it in. You
1: know who said that to me? My couples therapist. It made a big difference. She was like, and Zynga, I see you thinking about what you're going to say next. Just stop and listen to what Joel is saying. And I was like, eh, right. call me on the carpet, but you're right. I had my whole speech planned.
0: I love that you get to be on the couch as well as listening.
1: To whoever's on the oh, couch. Oh, I love the That's couch. Great. The couches, which is funny, right? Before I knew the value of the couch, I was a, a vocal opponent of it. And then I did my psychiatry rotation. Right. And now I, su- I support the couch.
2: Ninzia, the we've covered a lot of just such a range of territory, but I love how we kept leveling up and leveling up and leveling up. But with only a few minutes left, we got to move over to a over speed round. What do you think, Sharon? You think she's ready?
0: I think you're ready for speed round. In oh, goodness. Do you
1: feel ready? I'm sweating bullets. On.
0: <laughs> I think you're going to be great. <laughs> All right, here's the first one. What's one thing about you that no one expects?
1: Oh, people probably don't expect me to be such a big crybaby, but I am.
0: A crybaby about what? At the end of a movie crybaby or like something goes wrong crybaby?
1: Crying is my go-to emotion. Happy cry, excited cry, surprise cry, angry cry, irritated cry, tired cry, love, compassion cry. It's my go-to.
2: And yet no tears on this podcast.
1: I mean, I did get a little choked in the middle, but I've learned to control it just a little.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we didn't do our jobs properly. (laughs)
1: Fighting the lizard. She, she's good at fighting the lizard brain. That
2: is correct. Uh, damn.
0: We're going to have to have you come back just just so we
2: can make you cry. My
1: lizard brain literally has tears flowing at all times.
2: <laughs> <laughs> One of my friends is going to email me like, lizards don't cry. They don't have tear ducts. <laughs> can you recommend a book or a movie that has characters that you relate to?
1: Oh, So this is interesting, but one of the books that affected me most that I'll never forget is Kite Runner. And I don't know that it was necessarily that I related to the characters in that book, just myself, like, oh, I see my experience in this because that wasn't it. But I just felt the emotion in that book was so genuine that I feel like it's a book that can help people. We learn to suppress our emotions. Just like I said, I've practiced not crying on podcasts. So I feel like that's a book that can just help people access those deep emotions that we've been programmed to suppress. That
0: is a great book. I okay. forgot about that book oh too. You just mentioned it. such a good book. What is your favorite mom dish?
1: Wait, that my mom cooks or that I cook as a mom?
0: That your mom
2: Corn,
1: cooks. beef, and cabbage, hands down mm. over cornbread. <laughs> mm. I'm going to text her after this now that you brought it up.
2: No, but you offered the other one. We're all parents. What's your go to? What's your mom dish?
1: <laughs> Thank you for assuming that I have a mom dish. This is- <laughs> <laughs> My favorite mom dish comes from Blue Apron. So whatever blue aprons nice. in the box. Are they a sponsor they, of your podcast? They're not, Come they on. totally should be. My literally, they my should. youngest son, who is it, is like hands down naturally a gifted, talented, created culinary person. He's thirteen. How old is he? He's thirteen.
2: Oh, I thought you were gonna be like three, and I was like, I'm a terrible parent. Yeah. Well,
1: <laughs> it started from when he was three. He actually launched a turkey pepperoni chips business when he was six. What? Yeah, super, That's adorable. It's so, so cute. Oh my gosh. But he wrote in a birthday message to me one year, you're the best cook I've ever known. And I literally almost sent it to Blue Apron. Like I would you like, if have. I was given a speech, first, I would like to thank God who makes all things possible and Blue Apron <laughs> who <laughs> made this birthday. They make my kids possible. believe in me. Right. Exactly.
2: <laughs> I'm going to blow your mind though for a second. So, but, and you kind of, you got at it with your question about the question We've done probably like 50 episodes of this where we've asked that one. It's my favorite question to ask, the mom dish one. And we're going to have a cookbook about it, I guarantee one day. But we, the three of us as parents, are in the middle of creating the answer to that question for our kids right now. Yeah. And when I stop to think about it, I get really anxious in the kitchen. I'm like, oh, geez. (laughs) (laughs) Is this a good memory or a bad memory I'm creating right now?
0: That's great. It's pretty cool, though. I know the first time Roman said that to me, I was like, Oh shit. I better, I
1: better get this right. It's one of the things I struggle (laughs) with most because I definitely part of the love I experienced from my mom, you hear me getting choked up. So you might, you might meet your goal. Yes. I knew we would do it before (laughs) the podcast ends. She's like going incredible hands down as a mom. And part of that is her cooking. And so that has been one of the things I said, like, I'm going to learn how to do this for my kids. But then I also just had to take my own advice, which is don't recreate the wheel. If there's, Use your village. So Blue Apron is part of my village. Yeah.
2: Nice. yeah. We're all going to find out our mom dishes were like Joy of Cooking dishes.
0: From our mom. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like they didn't make these up. No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like put the flour on your nose. What? That was pretty Crocker.
0: I thought mashed potatoes came out of a box until I was twelve, just so you know. Because that's how my mom <laughs> made
1: mashed potatoes. But you loved it, didn't you? Like my mom loved it. I did. It. That was, was like that's love. it. That was that's my favorite that thing that she made
0: as a kid. And then I was like, wait, hungry Jack is not the <laughs> only way to make mashed potatoes.
2: I love that. I'm going to tell you, this is a a nerdy business story, but it's worth saying. So the makers of Duncan Hines, the cake mix, right? They made the most convenient, just add water cake mix and sales were not well. And what they found out was when they interviewed moms doing like consumer research is that the moms felt like they didn't love their kids enough. So what they did, they took out the powdered eggs. So you had to physically add an egg to the instant cake mix. And that's to this day, that still exists with cake mixes. They could put a powdered egg in it, but you add the egg because it makes you feel like you're cooking. That is a
1: fantastic nerdy business story. Yeah. Yeah. I love it Because it's so true. I definitely feel better when I crack the egg. That's like blue (laughs) egg. I could buy the meal already prepared, but chopping the vegetables makes me feel like I made an effort on behalf of my children. That is so funny.
2: So shifting gears, but staying on topic, what's your least favorite food?
1: So I have this real texture issue. So anything that is the texture of yogurt, jello, creme brulee, mousse, I don't eat any of those fancy. Anything that's like that, I don't eat. That's my least favorite. Even if it tastes good, it'll make me puke just because of the texture.
0: Wow. So, no puddings, yeah. nothing like that.
1: Wow. Did you hear that? I that like, was a genuine reaction yeah, to the word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> my wife's Chinese-American, and I'm Indian-American, but we're literally litigating this at home right now. I feel like the American palate, and I have more of an American palate than my wife does, it's really kind of anti-texture. I don't think Europeans or East Asians have the texture issues that us Americans do. And this is, look, I'm American more, but... And I I wonder if it's just like the food that we come up with.
1: So, you know, that is a great question. And I think it's, as everything, a combination of nature and nurture, because my oldest son, who is 15, actually, I believe, inherited my texture issue. To another degree, he won't even eat some things that he won't even drink a smoothie because he's like, it either just, I need to swallow it or I have to chew it.
2: Yeah, but uh, in Zynga, you clearly have no poker face about it. So I'm going to argue nurture. I guarantee every time I'm arguing, got I'm arguing <laughs> because
1: I have two you kids. Gagged, you gagged. You
0: <laughs> gag at, at the mention I did, of pudding. I did.
1: And, <laughs> oh, that's true. But she, she has a test and a control. I have it. a test and control. Oh, Thank yeah. you very much. Right. So my 13 right. year old. And so my 15-year-old inherited my palate, but also my sweet orientation. I orient towards sweet. Food can taste very salty to me very quickly. And that was from when he was a baby. Even baby food, he was like, no thanks, can I chew it? My (laughs) 13-year-old inherited my husband's palate. And these two eat applesauce and yogurt and blah, blah, blah. Those are their favorite foods, and they barely eat dessert. They're all about salty and savory. Sounds biological, doesn't it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's in the the DNA. I'm only
2: going to give it to you because you have a (laughs) degree.
0: Right, exactly. Anything you say sounds believable. I mean, really. You're always right. Just give her a British <laughs> accent and she wins everything. I need
1: to work on my British accent. No, Joel told me very early on. He's like, you state your opinion as if it's fact. And it's sometimes hard to tell the difference.
2: Oh, I do. I do that all the time. False <laughs> confidence wins every day of the week. Right, but you have exactly. a degree to back it up. So, exactly. You
1: know. <laughs> okay.
0: Next question. I think you probably have an answer to this. Who is someone out there that you'd want to interview on a podcast? Oh,
1: I, there are so many, but let's see. If I had to choose one person that I would want to interview for the podcast, it would probably be one of the Obama daughters. So you got to
2: pick. Are you team Sasha or are you team Malia?
1: Malia? Yeah. Which one? Oh, I'll go Sasha because she's the youngest. She seems like
0: she's a little more of a rebel than her big sister too. She
1: does seem revel Yeah. Maybe that's why I chose her too. But I think, I know for kids, it's actually super stressful growing up with dramatically high-performing parents. And so both of my kids have dramatically high-performing parents. So it's something that I'm very sensitive to. How do you make sure you're helping your kids? And I grew up with dramatically high-performing parents, and I think they did a good job of helping us have our own identities and not being lost in their identities. And so I'm like always interested to talk to kids about that.
2: Hey guys, you want to feel old? Cause I just looked it oh, up. Geez. Sasha's
1: 18
0: She's an yeah. adult. I can't even deal with it. She'll forever Yeah, they're cute. both in college. Michelle talks about it all the time. I mean, not that I know her on her podcast.
1: She'll <laughs> always be an elementary aged kid in my mind,
2: period. So last question in Zynga, are you ready? Mm-hmm. What does being a modern minority mean to you?
1: Being a modern minority, and this is just, I think, starting to become more doable. But so I would say the goal of being a modern minority is being able to show up as your full self and all the ways that your ethnic and gender and other identities inform who you are and what you have to offer to the world and not having to shrink that. Because I think- In the United States, because white patriarchy like straight white male has been the index, then we've all been taught to walk into a room and get ourselves as close to that index and shrink the other things about ourselves. And I think being a model minority is being able to stand up to that pressure and actually demonstrate that it is the non straight white male parts of my identity that bring my entire value to whatever this situation is. And it's not easy. But being a model is taking on that challenge.
2: That's great. Well, Nzinga, I've had so much fun and I've learned. Thank you for just kind of opening up and kind of taking us on a journey.
1: Thank you. I loved it. I have also learned. And one thing that I'm going to take away to try to do on this podcast is to have as soothing a voice as Sharon, because I feel like as a psychiatrist, my voice is probably harsh <laughs> compared to Sharon's, which is so soothing and made me feel like I'll tell you my deepest, darkest secrets. Ramen, your Thank voice you. is also beautiful. Whatever, I'm, whatever. I'm <laughs> just I, saying, yeah. if someone was going to rock me to sleep at night after I had a hard day, it would be Sharon's voice. That's all. I'm,
0: I'm, I'm just here to smooth out <laughs> his edges. That's that's my sole purpose here.
1: <laughs> I'm like a cackly loud mouth. So there you have it.
2: You do it well, and <laughs> I like it. Keep, you keep, such, keep doing it. Seriously. It was
1: such a pleasure. Thank you. you. really,
0: you, you opened up our minds and our hearts. So thank oh, you for being here.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
2: And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform.
0: Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three.
2: Want to learn more? or got something to share. Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom, at modmypod.com.
0: You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from
2: you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode. Interesting that I was talking to my parents about this. I don't feel at home here in my hometown, and I haven't for a long time. New York, above all places in the world, is the one place I feel more at home than anywhere else. And that's even more so than when I'm in Egypt, by the way, right? I feel at home in Egypt to a certain extent, but I can be more me in New York than I can be in Egypt. And I consider my Egyptian identity and roots, traits, language, despite that New York is more home to me than anywhere else. That's it for now. I've been Ramin Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there.
0: We'll talk to you soon.
1: Men deserve toys, too. Manly toys. With
2: Goat Guns, we turned historical firearms into accurate miniature gun models. They are one-third the scale and less than one-tenth the cost. Our die-cast metal models come with intricate working parts, so you have something to fidget around with during those work calls. Have a little fun and start your gun model collection today at GoatGuns.com.